Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast series. This series is brought to you by the Institute of Internal Communication and is hosted by myself, Jennifer Sproul, Dominic Walters and Catherine Barnard. How we work is in the early stages of profound transformation. Over the next decade, the entire nature of how we work will change. Technology, evolving socio-cultural attitudes and behaviours, globalisation, climate change, and these are just some of the trends impacting the way we work in the 2020s. While many aspects of work will change in the coming years, some things remain constant. One of those is the role communication plays in our ability to create understanding, meaning, and enable people to perform at their best, both individually and collectively. How we communicate sits at the heart of organisational success. World-class communication transforms working lives by helping people feel informed, connected and purposeful. When we feel seen and heard, we feel our contribution matters. With change as the new normal, the work of the internal communication profession has never been more important. And in this podcast series, we explore the changing world of work to identify the opportunities for the internal communication profession. We believe that a better understanding of the future of work will help us deliver better communication strategies for our organisations. And when we better serve our organisations, by default, we future-proof our careers. We hope you find this podcast series thought-provoking and encourages you to really see the opportunities that lie ahead as the world of work continues to change. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of the Future of Internal Communication podcast series. And today we're going to be talking about the role of internal communication and employee comms in the, in business and society. So we're delighted today to welcome our guest who's joining my regular host, myself, Jen, Kat and Dom are back with Kathy Brown, who is the chief executive of the Initiative for Social Entrepreneurs. And some of you may remember, know Kathy as well from her work with Engage for Success, um, which is the UK's movement for employee engagement. As well, Kathy has been operations director for the Employee Ownership Association. Kathy has wide-ranging experiences across the public and private and third sectors in raising awareness and providing practical guidance to organisations looking to improve workplace experience and performance through many different business models. So welcome, Kathy. Hopefully this is going to be a very interesting conversation around the role of internal comms in society. And what we talk about is the term good work. So to kick us off, Kathy, let's mm-hmm. just start with, with, the, with that clear question. What role does employment play in society? What is it there to do? What we're increasingly seeing is that it's playing an increasingly greater role. I mean, traditionally, we might think of it simply as production. Um, it's there to produce goods and services that are then consumed by other people and a very traditional capitalist way of looking at things. However, we're over the last, I would say, five to 10 years, increasingly seen becoming mainstream, businesses looking at their own social responsibility and that they are therefore more than that simple provision of services for money. Uh, So we're seeing that they are becoming environmentally conscious and aware of their impact there, um, that they are becoming far more conscious of the role that work plays in social cohesion um yeah work being a place where we come together to some extent on an equal basis where we don't really anywhere else necessarily uh, and that it's a point of social connection as well for people so far beyond that 
quite old traditional model of we go to work, we get paid, we come away, goods and services are created. So an increasing role would be my, my answer to that. I think that's a really interesting um, synopsis of how you perceive the, the role that work and employment mm. plays in society. I see a number of shifts that have taken place in the last perhaps even five years. I think organizations, for whatever reason, are moving away from the label of CSR, corporate social mm. responsibility, and shifting towards ESG, environmental, social, and governance. But there's very much now a um, focus on employers as a as a force for good in the world yeah. to address either environmental challenges um, and as we know the cri climate crisis beg your pardon is escalating by the day now um, yeah. or social social um, injustices and so on or both and then obviously you know the governance side of things like what is what does constitute yeah. a, a good business? And I think there's something really interesting that feeds in and out of this in the context of, you know, the work that you've done in the space of engagement in the past, yeah. Kathy. You know, I'm interested by the data that shows that we have, certainly in the UK, definitely in the United States, a loneliness ec epidemic where people are feeling increasingly socially isolated from one another. I personally attribute some of that to the rise, the advent of digital communication and social media and so mm. on. But, I, you know, if, if employers don't look to address some of, the, some of these issues, I don't see positive traction necessarily coming from elsewhere in time. So there's a massive responsibility on today's businesses to be that force, isn't there, of good? There, there is. And I mean, if we go, we can go truly historically and see examples that are very well known around, around this. You know, it's not coming out of nowhere in the last five to 10 years. We've only got to look at Bourneville in Birmingham and um, the Cabri Trust and Titus Salt and Salt Air. And they may have been coming at the philanthropy that they did through a very commercial lens. I mean, you know, we understand that if we provide people with the security of a home and a job and we look after their old people and we keep them clean and we keep them healthy, we're not going to have to keep retraining people to replace them when they die. You know, it's a very hard-nosed practicality. But we can see already there that people were thinking about the right way to treat people at work. Um, and, and I think the point about digital communications is, is interesting because to some degree it can help with that isolation, but we have a, a really quite significantly large proportion of the population that do not have access easily to digital media. Um, and they are people who are going to be marginalised on the edges of the workforce anyway. Uh, and so there is no substitute in my view for a blended approach when you look at communication. It has to be around offline as well as online. And what the best organizations I think are getting really adept at doing is creating a genuine sense of belonging to, to that organization 
beyond loyalty in a way. I mean, almost like creating a found family. Um, mm. And and that is what that is what we're looking for in various parts of our life. And if we get it at work, that's great. If we don't get it at work, then absolutely, it's starting to feed that very negative individual feeling that you can have of not being engaged with the way that you spend the primary amount of time in your life. You know, we're we're out every day at work, um, most of us, and. And if you don't have that, if you're just working in that isolation for no particular cause, um, it's, it's very transactional, then that is really difficult to, to square with yourself about getting any form of fulfillment from it. And if mm. you're spending all day doing an unfulfilling activity, that clearly has an impact on your mental health, loneliness you mentioned specifically mm. there, also your physical health, interestingly. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's another interesting bit to this, which I think, you know, hopefully um, organisations are starting to recognise. We know that our commercial landscapes are increasingly fast paced yeah. and we know that the only way that organisations will survive is through continuous innovation. And I'm reading a great book at the moment, which I can't recommend enough. It's called The Power of Us by David Mm. Price. And he's talking about open innovation and how progressive organizations are innovating beyond the boundaries of their organization. So they're engaging proactively with uh, prosumers, producer consumers Mm. um, to to create new stuff, to solve complex problems. And so this idea of an employer as a community builder, both within yes. within the organisation and I always say without, but you know, outside yes, of the organisation, yeah, um, to really, yeah, to build that sense mm. of engagement and community and togetherness and and collectively. And one of the fastest growing sectors of the economy is the sector that I currently work in, which is social enterprise. Um, And that's exactly what these businesses are set up to do. Uh, So they are... um, they're commercial businesses, you know, they're making a profit. They're not charities, but they are not for personal profit. So they don't have shareholders in that sense. And what they're doing is putting back their um, their profits into supporting the community, supporting the environment. Quite often they will have environmental goals. Um, and it, quite often, again, working with people, again, marginalised from the labour force and bringing them back into work in some form or another. Uh, And it's fascinating that it is receiving so much focus at the moment and a record number of them are being set up. And it's clearly because we're recognising that having that social purpose is actually important, important to people, important to the organisations and important, obviously, to society as a whole. Catherine, I'd like to ask a question about that because Mm. the the sort of organisations you're describing are very different from the ones that we may have seen not that long ago, 10, 15 years ago more. Um, so what differences does that, does that mean in terms of leadership? How, how, how different are the leaders of those organisations from the ones that we might recognise as being traditional leaders of organisations? Yep. It's a very entrepreneurial market. So um, a lot of these organisations are relatively small um, and they are immensely purpose-driven. Uh, and I think it's that purpose-driven element that is is the, the difference in terms of the leaders. But they're also, they're small enterprises, and so they're, they're generally not large. Um, and so you have, interestingly, got 
potentially a lack of leadership because leadership skills isn't necessarily one of the things that people think about when they're starting a small business. Mm -hmm. They're just like, I've got this idea, I want to do it, off I go. And they don't think that two years down the line they'll be employing people and spearheading something. They just want to do their thing. Um, And so we do actually find that leadership can be almost clunky, I suppose, (laughs) Because it's because it's almost an afterthought in this environment. Um, until you get to the bodies like Social Enterprise UK, which are are looking at policy over the whole piece. But the individual social enterprises can can you can have incredibly charismatic leaders within that because they're people with that great idea. But their actual ability to communicate and manage individually can can be somewhat lacking um, and it's one of the things that the initiative for social entrepreneurs works on is, is you know around we might offer startup advice further down the line we might offer growth advice um, but we also look at leadership skills uh, in that particular environment I just wanted to pick up one thing as I'm listening in it's so fascinating to talk about it and we talked about this sort of the pressures you know of environmental we talk about social Mm. isolation and all these issues that we're facing and and I think you make some really good points there around this digital communication becoming quite sort of divisive or perhaps alienating Mm. in in some ways and and I wonder if we're also with that and reflecting on what we've been through in sort of a social mobility crisis yes in terms of what are we doing to enable people from all backgrounds from all ways to to have good work and to get onto the economy where let's face it that you know 30 years ago it was mm. you, you, got, you got a job you got a pension you stayed yep. in it you were yep. you were sorted well, the we, we're not in that know, place anymore we're, we're not at all and I mean we the large amount of our work is in inner city Birmingham so we are Britain's second city if there's a, a terrible amount of deprivation still in Birmingham um an awful lot of regeneration as well but still some incredibly poor areas uh, and a large amount of people who absolutely are marginal on the edges of the workforce and so some of what we do is um often in partnership with other organizations which you see a lot within the social economy of partnership working and consortia working um is looking at basic employability skills, including digital access. Um, but sometimes, I mean, during the pandemic, we've had to go a step further towards the community in the sense that people were hungry. We pivoted to set up a food bank. That's not something part of our traditional activity at all. But you can't get women particularly to think about setting up a social enterprise if they can't feed the children you know you've you've got to go right back to the basics of what puts somebody in the mindset to be at work and so what are the steps that we've got to address before we even get there Um, another big sector of people that we're starting to recognize how marginalized they are in the workplace is the neurodivergent for instance Um, and traditional support systems set up actually don't work with a neurodivergent brain. Um, And so traditional ways that we might teach people about employability or about what it's like in an organization simply are are wrongly structured to to enable people to even take a first step um, towards, I mean, if you're coming out of long-term employment, for instance, or or if you're disabled, you know, we've, we've got to get the the tone and the activity and the structure of these things right in order to even get people on that first step of the ladder. And one of the things that we're looking at doing is rather than a traditional um, sort of we're in a job centre, let us tell you about this course we're offering, we're saying come and talk to 
our chief exec, who's just spent nine months working on the floor in a warehouse because she lost her job. Um, and you can come and ask her all the silly questions you might have about agency working or warehouse working, because there's loads of jobs out there if you want them. But people who've never been in that situation, just even the fear of somewhere new and unusual like that will be enough to put them off applying for those jobs. Whereas if they can actually just come and have a chat with me and say, well, what's it actually like in that warehouse? And I can tell them, I can tell them exactly, you know, it's not somebody from the warehouse giving them a sales job. It's somebody who was there on that floor doing it. Um, and I think that's really important is recognizing the fears that people have about coming back into a workforce or accessing work when they they have either a disability or a, a problem around that. I think that is so interesting. Just a couple of things that arise for me. You know, the mainstream conversation at the moment is so much geared towards hybrid work and people mm. achieving work, flexibility and being able to work in a distributed fashion and so on and so forth. But back to an earlier point that you made about, well, Jen, I think you started it with social mobility, access to the technology that can include you. I'll tell you a story anecdotally, which I think feeds into my next point. My son is dyslexic. When the whole of the country went into lockdown in March of last year, obviously the schools scrambled to adapt to online learning as fast as possible. And some schools were better equipped than others. We saw that instance, didn't we, where there were so many families mm. who lacked the hardware yep. to facilitate online learning. You heard stories of dreadful, I've got goosebumps, you know, horrible stories about, you know, whole families crowded around one cell mm. phone. Um, and, and indeed, the private sector stepped in, I think, to um, donate, you know, laptops mm. and, and tablets and so on and so forth. Um, but another thing, just going back to the neurodivergence point, so my son's dyslexic and he, his particular type of dyslexia inhibits him from following multi-stage directions. So, yes. for instance, I might say to you, right, Kathy, come into the classroom, put your bags down. Here's the learning objective on the blackboard. Can you write it down and can you get cracking? But he would be yes. completely lost. And because everybody was scrambling to adapt, nobody thought, and I'm not, this isn't a pity party, by the way, but nobody thought to check in on all the kids that had SEN to make sure that they were okay with what was going on. And like nine months later, nine months later, it's been realized, okay, well, the reason why his grades have dipped are because mm. there was no engagement strategy for the kids whose brains... Yes aren't programmed in a similar way. Yeah. And I can't help but think, tying this all back to the, the kind of the starting point, mm. we miss so much when we communicate digitally, assuming yeah. that everyone's got the tools and the means to connect digitally in the first place. But nothing, nothing, nothing beats a conversation in person where you can read the emotion on somebody's face yeah. where you can check right in with them and see how they're processing yeah. your and, side of the transaction. It's but so interestingly, Kat, we don't always get that right either. So it's not a, a silver bullet by any means because you've got to have, I think, the self-insight and the self-awareness 
to understand how other people communicate. Um, and I mean, I, talking about our sons, I got something really wrong with my son this weekend. Um, and I dismissed him and made an assumption in a conversation. And I can't get that moment back. I can't get it back. And I feel awful. And the only thing I can do is take that into myself and say, be better next time. You know, you knew that wasn't the right way to respond, really, and yet you still did it. And I've marginalised him from a, a really important conversation. So, and I, you know, if I do, if I do that to my own child, I can risk doing that at work. It's quite possible if you think about a team meeting or whatever else. The, the neurodivergent, the introverted among us, the people who are just having a bit of an off day, if we aren't aware as leaders and communicators that people have very, very different ways of accessing what we're saying, then we're not going to get it right either digitally or face-to-face. Cathy, I'd like to pick up on something we, we, we talked about a few moments ago about the concept of good work. Yes. Because I guess if there is good work, correspondingly, there must be bad work too. Mm. I'm, I'm sure we can all think of examples of that. <laughs> but it, be, it would be good to just get your definition of what you think good work is and bad work, and then how organi- how organisations can make sure they do more of the former and less of the yeah. latter. Yeah. Um, for me, it's around being people-centred. So, mm. you know, the, the goals of the organisation shift from making money or satisfying shareholders to, to actually consciously saying, you know, we are here for a greater mission than that. Uh, and that's your first step, I think, towards acknowledging that, other things are as important. Um, I think there's some basic stuff around paying living wages and understanding the impact that that has on people um, and around looking at the policies that you have and whether or not they actually give people basic human dignity. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Again, well, if you want a a nice, easy, warehouse-related example of a bad policy, um, they were very insistent that we we had to tell them about any form of medication that we were taking. So there was no nuance to that whatsoever. So I wrote a great big screed out about my blood pressure medication and my HRT, knowing full well that that wasn't what they meant. But the point was, that was what was in the policy. And my manager was being very insistent. No, 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 we need to know everything everything. So I wrote it all down. He was going, oh, I'm not really sure we need to know that. And I'm going, no, no, this was an invasion of privacy, but I've done it to show you how ridiculous this policy was. So then he said, well, perhaps we ought to go and speak to HR. So I said, well, obviously, I'm quite happy to go and speak to HR. He had to come with me because I was not allowed to speak to HR on my own. That's all, all of that is bad work. It's not trusting people. It's not using common sense, decent, dignified policies. You know, it's, it's not hard it's because people are taking a mass view over something because they think then it's easier to control um so i mean the the, the first element of good work for me is trust I mean, i'd love to pick up on that a bit more because sometimes you see good companies go bad mm. uh, for example yep. uh, obviously in the public domain we saw Brewdog, which hitherto has, has held up as example of great mm. uh, uh, policies around purpose and around establishing the right sort of organization yeah. and yet obviously people's experience was very different or at least those 64 people mm. who complained um, i know you can't come to that particular circumstance but but why do you think that happens you've got good intentions from entrepreneurs yeah. and then they they go bad yeah i, I think goes bad. I think particularly in that instance, I think there's a tendency for some organizations to look at engagement um, as a marketing tool, as opposed to something that is a culture that you are creating within your environment. Um, And I think that's 
what happened there, and I think we see that quite commonly. Um, so it's 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 quite artificial, really. It's not genuinely thinking about what works for your people. It's what looks good to the outside world. Oh, all of a sudden that's fallen apart. Um, one of the things we say around engagement with Engage for Success is that it has to be genuine. You know, we're grown-ups. We can tell if somebody's spinning us a line, and eventually that will come back to roost. And I think also the old adage about if someone tells you that they're trustworthy, they're probably not. I think an, orga- an organization that goes out and says we are great at engagement probably think is protesting too much about it. So that was a very interesting example. <laughs> I think that's really interesting as well, because when I think about what you're saying there, Cathy, I, I, for me, so much of um, perceived success at work has been transactionalized. And I... Mm. I would say, you know, and I think, unfortunately, the management consultancies have got a part to play in here in their kind of like recipe book instruction, the very didactic, if you do this, you will achieve this to the point where now we're all hooked on the next piece of instruction. And one of the things that I enjoy and I've ended up being a bit controversial, but I, you know, People talk babble all day. They use, you know, the latest Mm -hmm. buzzwords and acronyms and so on. And my favorite one at the moment, which does feed into this conversation, is uh, psychological safety. Because I have no offense, Dom. I have men spouting psychological safety at me. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they cannot explain it. And Mm -hmm. for me, it's the flip side of trust. Those, yep. those two things are completely kind of immersed and embedded. And we were talking about this on um, on another episode a little bit about um, communication is an art form and engagement is an art form. And we've gone so far down the path of believing that anything to do with work is scientific. And if mm-hmm. you follow this methodology, you'll get this output. Well, some of that is true, but not all of it. And actually, how we engage hearts and minds is is an art form, I it's, think. It's emotional and therefore it's messy and untidy and irrational because that's what we are as human beings. And and if you try and squeeze all of that into a set of boxes, uh, it will just in the end escape because that isn't how we are. And the irony of all this, of course, is everybody knows Sorry, pretty much everybody knows how to engage other people because either they've been engaged themselves or they've mm-hmm. they've been successful at doing it in other walks of life outside what's loosely termed work. So I think this, it does go back to the fact people get yeah. scared because they haven't got a process to follow. We do. And I think we also, the language we choose, and, and also talking to a, a team of internal communicators here, I, I, I know I'm teaching you to suck eggs, but you know, I don't talk about engagement when I'm talking to people, if I'm talking to my staff or anything else. It's a very unhuman word. Um, and I will quite often ask in interviews, what, what gives you a buzz about your working day? What is it that you enjoy the most? What switches you off and makes you feel like, oh, flipping hell, I don't want to come in here again? Um, and that, that's engagement. That's describing how engagement feels and how it makes us behave and what we like. Not saying, do you feel engaged today, which is just guaranteed to make anybody roll their eyes at you, I think. I think being controversial as well, I think it goes into job titles as well. I get quite frustrated now when you see engagement managers and it's a job title, director of engagement. You think, well, hang on, it's all become a process as opposed to 
And that's always quite dangerous as well. And so something I've observed over the years is if you do have a role like that in an organisation, what happens is everybody else immediately devolves responsibility for engagement to that person. And of Mm. course, engagement is a company-wide, person-wide responsibility. Everybody up and down from the top to the bottom should be involved in it. Um, And so the moment you designate somebody as being in charge, that's it. It's, oh, no, engagement's Joe over there. I think that's true of culture as well. You're seeing that as yeah. kind of something that can be manufactured. Yeah. Can we true? And I've always, and my view has always been you, it, and people say, well, internal comms, you can create culture or yeah. by, by sending a message, you can manufacture yeah. this culture that we want. And actually there's cultures and it's, and it's so complex and so messy and to understand. And I, I they're, they're organic and ecosystems yeah. and they, they grow and they're nurtured rather than, not and this is how you can end up with bad culture because you can grow a bad one just as you can, well as you can grow a good one yeah yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely and I, there's so much to reflect on and, it, and it's funny it does it feels does feel like another moment in time in terms of, mm-hmm. of history and I'm just reflecting on what we said at the very beginning as well as about actually we're here for the purpose of community yeah. as well from a societal perspective not just think about communities at work actually what we serve to ourselves as human beings uh, as members of this society that just want to have a good life and whether Mm. we want to work to come with that and and I remember this is just a bit of bit of history really there was and I wasn't there because it was back in 1959 so I'm just gonna just gonna put that out there but I remember when I joined the IOIC and it was called the back in the day the British Society of Industrial Editors which I'm sure Don will remember and in the so you're talking about sort of post-World War II Britain, you know, recovery. And um, at the 10th year anniversary, the Duke of Edinburgh gave the speech at the, at the IOIC's anniversary. And he said about staff magazines, because that's all there was for internal comms back then, um, the purpose of them is never to be a mouthpiece for management, to be, to be about the communities that they serve. Yeah. So do we feel, and I guess that just makes me think, you know, lots happened since then, but how do we now pivot on perhaps when they you know, we were coming out of, you know, the industrial revolution, you know, all those kinds of the jobs scenario has changed. We're much more service-based economy. Um, we're a knowledge-based economy. How do we now come back to as an, an internal comms? You know, what is our role now to be that piece that helps enable good work and build trust? Because it's been there in our heritage but I feel like the world's just got really messy again. I, I, I think there's a real piece here about, about voice, exactly that, that quote, essentially. But it's both listening to and amplifying the voices. So internal comms, it should not be a broadcast channel. It's not about relaying messages from above to below. It, it has to be about gathering those voices uh, and giving them room to be heard. And whether that is voices from the employees, whether it's voices of the wider community, whatever it is, but it's being open to that as well and changing the mindset that says, well, no, internal comps, that's fine. They'll write a brief for the chief exec to do and, you know, whatever it is. It's got to be understanding that far, far wider remit of, of gathering those diverse voices and, While I agree with Kat and the point about psychological safety being a real buzzword, it's important that people feel that their voice is valued Mm. um, and and that what they're saying will be listened to. It doesn't have to be actioned necessarily, but you need some form of acknowledgement or response that that what you've said has been heard um, as, as a minimum. 
really. Um, and, and I think that's really important. And that, yeah, again, if we go back to an engagement space, we very often look at surveys, engagement surveys being the way that we find out what people are thinking within the organisation. But there's no internal comms involvement there generally, other than perhaps sometimes putting out the results of that. And so there are ways in larger organisations that we should be embedding that communications mindset in a number of different places where it doesn't already exist in order to realise those voices coming out and being heard. Mm. I think, oh, sorry, I was just going to say for me, sorry, Dom, for me, it feels like a natural progression for the internal comms profession is to become a, become a community builder to enable the coming together of people to sit in the company of one another, which is where people then mostly feel seen and heard mm. and so on. So if something um, about the opportunity, which is kind of moving away from the written word, the broadcast mm. message towards an embodied sense of how we come together as human beings to provide solidarity and rapport mm. and togetherness, which binds us mm. also around a purpose and binds Absolutely. us to a shared yeah. um, and, direction and of travel. So we're back to the, the possibly the oldest form of community building, which is storytelling. Um, yes. Because that's yes. exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah, 100%. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it, it is true about the role of comms isn't it that, that really it boils down i think to uh, helping people make sense of what's going on around them so they can make informed decisions and, and i think and i think that's part of that is about clarity and about good messaging but increasing chunk of it is around having those conversations and then we've talked about this in previous episodes it's about getting leaders to be able to ask questions take the time to involve people help them think things through and, and tell good stories so i'm yeah. delighted to hear what the <laughs> stories are, are crucially so are so important yeah and I, I think they are and i'm just reflecting on it as well as you know and i said we're kind of we're here on this podcast series talking about the future of internal communication with a rich tapestry as we've explained behind us and and a moving society and and, and we, we all feel something as human beings around the world and what's going on us around now i think you know you can't not um and i think we we all understand today and you know we're all on the same page about actually the role that communication plays what we need to create as organizations for good work um, to give good lives and all the things that we do and how internal communication can help foster that sense of dialogue, connection, hearing, conversation, all those things that help us to do that. And I just sit here at the end and I just want to sort of, I'm reflecting on it, going, I know it's valuable, I understand it, but how do we, is there a challenge that we're going to have in making that case to an organisation that this is the right way to do something rather than trying to run out those answers? How do we... You know, because we talk about, I know Engage Success was founded on, you know, the productivity, you know, on all those sorts of things and what it gives to the UK economy. How do we contextualise that argument into a, I guess, a business benefit? I, I think it's this move that we're seeing towards principles-led business. Um, and if organisations are already thinking in those terms, if they're thinking, I mean, we, we mentioned ESG earlier on, if they're thinking about how they're set up and how they impact society and how they impact the environment and if their governance is good, 
then they're already in a space where they will they will recognize that internal comms is is a route to that and and is a route to forming that with the whole of the company um if they're not yet in that space then for me one of the best examples is just always peer pressure is highlighting those great examples that are out there already um and not in a you know moralistic this is the way you should be doing it way but just in that look how successful this is yeah I mean, that's a really good suggestion one actually we've not we've not picked up on actually is kind of actually role modeling to those people mm. if you want to do this kind of organization look at what's happening over here and that's yeah. based on these principles so we need to adopt them and you know businesses they don't always last forever and I and I wonder in your your role as well just to kind of close off in terms of thinking about the Institute of mm. Social Enterprise and kind of talking about those small businesses and those there's many ideas happening in bedrooms you know where people are thinking or coming <laughs> up to I remember hearing that you know that's where things like Angry Birds came from somebody was bored in their bedroom <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And came up with a game that you know made them lots of money and I wonder if you know in terms of our audience you know they're working in those sort of large corporate organizations mm. because that's where an internal comms function is dedicated function is invested yeah. in but every organization has internal comms because they do this, they Every do. Conversation there. I mean, in a general workplace sense, I think that one of the changes that we will see uh, will be resource banks. So as, for instance, social enterprises create communities, as we've done here. So we have um, Birmingham is de- designated as a social enterprise city. Uh, and we have a social enterprise quarter in Digbeth, which actually has the largest concentration of social enterprises in a square mile anywhere in the UK. Um, so they are creating communities for themselves. But I think resource banks around key skills like internal comms that they can then share um, is a route forward that many of those organisations will be taking. Um, marketing is another example of a skill that, that they all need but don't necessarily have access to. Um, and I think that's, that's a, a route that will continue to evolve. And I think that's a lovely one. It gives us something to, I think, go away as as an institute ourselves to to, to reflect on what what can we do to enable that rather than for for society as a whole, rather Mm -hmm. than perhaps, you know, where we see the mass, can we make it adaptable and, and help develop those skills? And when I think we're in a number of crises from, you know, isolation to social mobility to all those ESG to all those things that we thought about and perhaps there's something we can all, our listeners, take away and think, what can I do? To, to help to help us get through those crises and what are my principles and my purpose perhaps so on that note I think that brings us to an end that was a, a fascinating and you know you know one of those things where you're going to ha- you're going to end and go I'm going to really think on that for a while because yeah. <laughs> I am going to really think yeah. on that for a while because we all want uh, to make good work and um, good Me lives and do the right thing for, for society and I think this is a moment in time for us all to reflect on that so Cathy thank you so much for your time today and a Dom as always my podcast partners <laughs> thank you and um, we'll see you all again on the uh, next episode this podcast has been brought to you today by the Institute of Internal Communication and is produced by Jessica Williams and Shabi Tolu Ogun Polu.